0: Welcome to the June episode of International Voices. My name is Udo Fluck. I oversee the office of Arts Missoula Global, and I am the host and moderator of this podcast series. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you by Arts Missoula Global and The Trail 1033. I started the International Voices podcast in the spring of 2020. To listen to episodes from the last three years, please visit artsmissoula.org, click on Global and Cultural Affairs, and visit radio and podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you through a collaboration of Arts Missoula Global and The Trail 1033. The monthly International Voices podcasts in 2023 are exclusively sponsored by Orr McDonnell Law, advocates for all personal injury, family law, and landlord tenant matters. My guest today is Dr. Ray Calloway, Regents Professor at the University of Montana. Dr. Calloway is a prominent planned and community ecologist that obtained his master's of science at the University of Tennessee in 1983 and his doctor of philosophy at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in 1990. Ray, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us a little background before we get into our first question.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I came to the University of Montana in January of 1993, so I've been been here a little over 30 years. I'm a, a community ecologist, so what that means is I'm somebody that studies how groups of organisms coexist, interact, the meaning of diversity, uh, biological diversity, um, and, and, and so on. And I started off really being interested in, in facilitative interactions, which are kind of positive effects that organisms have on each other, um, because it was sort of this contrast kind of, uh, to competition in terms of how the natural world gets organized, or is organized. And then, uh, we, can, I mean, we can talk in more detail about it later, I got interested in, in um, exotic plant invasions, or exotic invasions in general, and that's occupied probably more than half of my research time since then. So that's my background, um, and that's still pretty much what, what I do. And
0: that's a perfect fit for the focus um, for the June podcast, which is global ecology, interactions between exotic invaders and native ecosystems. And I think just as a foundation for our listeners, um, before we get started, could you please define what a native plant species and a non native plant species is, and provide the listener with an example for each.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a trick question. I mean, all species are native somewhere. Uh, the problem right. is is when they go, right, they, they end up in places where they have not evolved, have not been before. So, so the native, non-native thing uh, is, is, is a human construct. You know, uh, we we it's it's handy and able to be able to study really interesting things, uh, but basically we consider natives to be species that evolve in a particular place have not did not arrive there uh, at the hand of humans. And non-natives generally, just again, it's sort of a working definition mm-hmm. as species that have been moved by humans and usually relatively recently, like in the last since Columbus, to a different part of the world, part of the world where they didn't evolve and and, and didn't occur until a human moved them there. So again, you can you can certainly find a lot of holes in that. In which, I mean, it's not the perfect, you know, black and white sure. definition, but that's how we do it. That's how that's how we um, uh, classify these things in order, to, in order to work on them and ask interesting questions about them.
0: And so the idea being, and you mentioned Columbus, uh, explorers that have gone places and have taken specimens from that location and then brought them to another location. Yeah. Is that the idea of how yeah, human— I mean,
1: Human aided, uh, yeah, that's right. Distribution, yeah, that's right. Uh, um, probably, mo- probably most invasives. I'm not positive about this, but probably most exotic invasive plants have been uh, introduced accidentally oh. through agriculture in you know grain seed and s- or that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But it, I could be wrong. It may be that horticultural species are surpassing that mode of introduction. Okay. Be, but because horticultural species can be a problem. In other words, our, our Missoula beloved Norway maples can be in some places, and uh, mostly in the eastern deciduous forest, invasive and problematic. So then um, we've cut them out of Rattlesnake Park like crazy because of the impact they've had on our natives. And I know that impact story is going to be a big one when we get to that question. But these introduced are exa- uh, Non-native species can be can be intentionally brought by humans, or they can be accidentally brought. You know, for example, spotted napweed, mm. which is one of our least favorite around here, right. was probably introduced in in grain from 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 Europe, okay. uh, grain shipments, and then as either that grain was used as seed grain, mm-hmm. uh, napweed was spread or okay. at least introduced. Uh, nobody knows that for sure, but that's at least the last story I've heard. Oh, okay. How did
0: you get interested in studying invasive plant species? Was there a catalyst moment or <laughs> was there um a, an event or a person that was instrumental in getting you started in the field?
1: Yeah. Um I uh, originally was not interested in in invasive species or non-native species. Um and let me t- but parenthetically let me just jump in non-native and invasive kind of mean two different things. If you're an invasive, by most ecologists' definition, you are non native. But many, most non natives are not invasive. So we'll try, I'll try to be precise with the terminology because an invasive species is usually one that we as humans think. Is bad, or you can quantify it by hey, when this guy shows up, all the natives disappear, and then by we call that invasive. Mm-hmm. But not all non-natives are invasive. So just to be clear, okay. So, end parentheses. Back to your question. Um, yeah, I was in my in my you know eager pursuit of sort of community ecology. I thought non-natives were 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 problematic, just got in the way, were messy, don't mess with them. I encouraged the breaking point or the or the threshold was my first two graduate students, they were interested in non-native, exotic, invasive species. And I actually kind of counseled, advised them in all my wisdom to not to do that, study something else that was, you know, a more of an evolutionary history and relationship. And they uh, like most good grad- grads should do, they sort of quietly ignored me and, and <laughs> did what they wanted to do. And then maybe, I don't know, within a year or so, I began to realize that they were really on to something, is that, the, is that the, the, they were working mostly with spotted knapweed. And that it just began to seem intuitively like these exotic non-native invasive species were just breaking these rules, breaking rules, the ecological rules that were very important, and we can talk about that too, but one that has emerged in the last 15 years, or maybe a little bit less, is sort of what we call um, net primary productivity, which is like as close as you can get to a rule in ecology. Mm controlled by the climate it's controlled by temperature it's controlled by water and the globe has these patterns of net primary productivity that are fixed we have a it's like a law in ecology right well no exotic invasives now been shown in several meta-analyses to increase net primary productivity by maybe an average of 80 percent that's crazy we don't know why that is but that's crazy so that's a really good example of rule breaking and we can talk about others later if you want but that was sure. a threshold moment what, you know watching what these students thinking about what these students were doing and realizing that you know we uh, that that uh, our perceptions of exotic invasive species should be turned around instead of saying oh we need to throw all of our ecology at these in, uh, invasive species now, invasive species ought to be shifting and changing the way we think about ecology. And I think that has happened in the last 20 years or, or maybe a little more than that. But I, I definitely think that has happened with many, many ecologists. You have your own research lab
0: at the University of Montana. What is your primary research focus?
1: Well, again, I'm an ecologist. And, and if you want to kind of you know, narrow that down, a community ecologist, I know more about plants than I do about animals, but certainly my work has involved uh, a lot of microbial type stuff without really much microbial expertise. Uh, herbivores, you know, you have to you know something about what eats plants, especially right. exotics. But, it, but that's, I mean, that's what my lab does. I, do, I have never basically told my PhD students in particular what to do. Um, it's usually the reverse. They tell me what to do, uh, but it's really important that they develop their own ideas. They right. l- they learn how to function independently. So what that has meant is that I'm sort of a sort of a jack of all trades, master of none, as an e- as ecologist, as an ecologist. In part, you know, giving students the freedom to really develop as scholars. Um, so, and was that, did I miss an aspect of your question or was that? Yeah,
0: and I think the, the other question would be um, how important is it for a researcher to have their own lab and oh, to, I see. to not be somewhere in another lab, but to, to have control over your own area?
1: Yeah, uh pro- I think super important. Uh, and and it's it's pretty simple. Uh it it gives, uh, it gives a a scientist, a scholar, a researcher uh the freedom to be entrepreneurial, uh, fit to fail, uh which is common uh, at least in my experience. The the that's really important. In other words, and and if all of the ideas are coming from one brain at the top, there won't be that many. Uh, and if you allow students or others to develop ideas and then, you know, parasitize them, I've done a good job pretending, you know, I've had something to do with most of my student stuff, uh, th- I mean, then you have multiple brains working on the, on the same ideas or right. are, are on the same subject. And you will do better b- by uh, encouraging that entrepreneurial spirit. The, I mean, we're in an age in which team science is really important, but the... the, the, the I really believe that it needs to be very organic, or as organic as possible. Instead of telling people to work together, allow people, giving them the opportunity to to co-generate ideas and then opportunities to you know charge off with those ideas, but without telling them or mandating you know what they right. should be doing in science. And we we are this is a, this is an always in my now I'm gonna off on my own little rant. This is a threat, in my opinion, all the time to science, in in actually in in the West. In other words, not giving scientists you know the chance to be entrepreneurial.
0: And I would think that having your own research lab also um, aids in connecting with other um, research facilities around the world and making this uh, something much bigger than if you would not have your own. Laboratory,
1: yeah, or at least it has given me the opportunity opportunity to make those choices myself. Right. and I've because I I do a lot of work that I call biogeographical. In other words, looking at a species in its native range and how it behaves and what it does, and species in its non-native range right. and what it be- how it behaves and what it does. To do that, having really good colleagues around the world which is one of the reasons I'm here talking to you, right. is is really important. In other right. words, I, and so, developing those long-term relationships that for me have developed into just really fantastic friendships uh, has been a highlight of my career. And it is crucial to studying, really getting at the uh, the mechanism behind exotic invasions. And to connect to that,
0: you're saying most of your current work is on interactions between exotic invaders and native species. Can you elaborate a little bit on why this is truly a global issue
1: and not something
0: <laughs> that is in any way a local
1: Yeah, Yeah, uh, rain me in if I, if I uh, head off in the wrong direction, but sure. the, 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 it's a global issue or a biogeographic issue, which is the same thing because the, these clues come from studying these species in their native range. For example, let's go back to spotted knapweed. Spotted knapweed is a kind of a nobody in its native range of Europe. You know, I've driven around many, 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 many miles in countries looking for it, um, and it you know, grows by the side of the road, maybe in some rocky places, but it is not a dominant thing that appears to be driving out other of its own co-natives, where it's native. Here where it's non-native, it's taken on a very different kind of role, and that, and that is by driving out other species. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg because you know we take species from uh, uh, the, the native and non-native range, we right. put them in the greenhouse, we make them do things together under controlled conditions, <laughs> we give them their soil biota or not, when the soil biota is an amazing part of the picture, uh, so we do a lot of things to try to manipulate what goes on at home versus what goes on here. And that gives us insight into things that may make a species invasive. So that without that biogeographic component or connection, you cannot know that. You can make strong inference or get strong inference, but you can't get the most powerful information information Until you find out, well, you know, spotted knapweed invades really highly diverse communities here in experimental setups and um, responds in 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 a particular way. A colleague of mine, John Marin, has done just some fantastic work on that. Well, you set up the exact same experiments in where they did in Switzerland and spotted knapweed hardly can move in. Much less respond to diversity or anything like that. It's kind right. of it's kind of a nothing burger in terms of an experiment in Switzerland. It's right. native range, right? But here, is a it was a completely different story. And over time, there aren't really ha- hardly any natives left, right? If you leave it long enough. So that bioge those many many kinds of biogeographic patterns and understanding rapid evolution as well uh, need a biogeographic or global context. Right. You just must have it.
0: And I would think that after discovery um, and uh, realizing that this is a problem, then the global aspect of it must be interesting to see what others are doing in other locations to to combat the situation or to solve the, solve the, the yeah. spread. Um, and it may be different from one's own techniques or approaches.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the in terms of controlling uh, non-native species, non-native invaders, um, I mean the the the, the the options are relatively limited. You know, one very clear biogeographical approach that has been around for a long time. Uh, has been the introduction of biological control organisms. Those may be pathogens, but they're more commonly, spe- commonly specialist insects. In other words, insects that only attack one genus or sometimes one species. They're highly adapted to very specific defense chemicals in the in a particular plant species. And the idea, one of the the leading idea for successful invasion. Is that plants get away from those specialist insects when they are brought to a new range? Right. And so biological control is bringing those insects uh, to uh, to to the non-native range. Uh, so we've introduced I don't know what it is now, but at one point it was eleven. I bet it's more than that now. Insects to try to control spotted knapweed, some with uh, some effect and, and some with um, not so strong effects. Um, but that that whole industry, of biolog- uh, you know, of biological c- control is built on your global perspective, right? How to how to do it, how to control the spread mm-hmm. of these things mm-hmm. in their non-native ranges. Again, they're not an issue in their native ranges. Right. Um, uh, well, then, of course, you know, by far the most successful. Uh, depending on how you want to measure it, uh, would be uh, the, the use of herbicides. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, napweed can be uh, controlled for a period of time quite well, you know, with, with, a, with particular herbicides. Um, and the others are things like hand pulling or, you know, but there are not a lot of options. Uh, In my lab, we've worked unsuccessfully at trying to develop species mixes of natives that are more resistant uh, to invaders than others. And uh, the the problem is, is we can't find a consistent suite of traits. But we have, you know, tried to put together, you know, species that look like they're good competitors. But it does seem like in the long run, at least in our Western Montana environment, the Non-native invaders always win. You know, over time, they that they win.? Huh. So
0: <laughs> When humans introduce some plant species to new regions, they force together species from different continents, and that can disrupt communities as invasive species can cause great economic and environmental harm to the new environment. Are there advantages or benefits of invasive species as well?
1: Probably very few for what we, you know, humans call invasive species. Non-native species, of course. Uh, I mean, we have exchanged, you know, food plants all around the world with fantastic success. Most of those don't become invasive. Um, invasive species can interact with natives in ways that are a little bit surprising. Sometimes they can have positive effects on some native species. It's relatively rare, but the the, the net effect is 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 pretty negative. Some there there's some debate about particular species being used for biofuels. It's not clear how invasive some of these might be, but they grow very large and very fast, and so they're 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 considered to be important biofield, biofuel biofuel species. Um, so that might be the closest, at least it comes to mind. Right, that may be one of the closest things that 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 comes to mind. I mean, are you, yeah. Then there may be some other things that you can eat. You know, like blackberries, and you think, okay, that's a nice thing. But, you know, even though it's a bummer, it's invasive, but I'll eat them. Right. Um, So, something like that. But I still would say probably the net effect of something, you know, wiping out a forest understory is negative.
0: Right, right. So, it's mostly on the negative side, while there could be some advantages—
1: yeah, I'm. Um, I mean, I'm. benefits, but this is what I this is what I do for a living, so I'm biased, right? sure. I, I mean, to me, they seem yeah. The, 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 the balance seems seems to be pretty highly negative.
0: Now, I was just thinking of something, um, when you were saying that the way, for example, spotted knapweed, uh, when it came from Europe, didn't cause any problems in Europe, um, over here through grain shipments, most likely then it was in a new environment and just went crazy. Are there are there um, plant species known where this has gone the other way? Where um, they grew here and were not an issue, but then somehow through trade or explorers were brought to other parts in the world and caused a problem there?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, invasions go in every direction uh, I thought so maybe. Uh, there, there has been uh, uh, a lot of debate uh, on on differences proportional differences like Europe is more invaded by I mean uh, North America is more invaded by Eurasian plants than vice versa and so some people would argue whether there's something you know you know different mm-hmm. about that but we don't know it could be just the how aggressive people have been about moving stuff in one direction or not. Hmm. But um, yes, for sure. So, for example, Canadian goldenrod uh, is, is uh, which Canadian, North America, you might expect, uh, is, is quite invas- invasive in Eurasia. Um, our, uh, what is it, Joe Curry or Virginia, Pr- Prunus virginiana is very invasive in Northern Europe, Rhododendrons. So, you can come up with a, quite a large list of North American species that are invasive in Eurasia, or, you know, um, you know, China, for example, um, South America, so it goes. So it
0: truly goes both ways, even though we only typically look here how it impacts us. That's correct. But But it's the same if we would look in other locations, they are having most likely the same issues.
1: It's not most likely they it they is, are having the same issues, having... but but it is interesting. For example, I mean Americans probably are a little more uptight about it because a lot of North America is in somewhat closer to a pristine state or natural state, native plants, or over large areas. Whereas in Europe, that's less common, right. um, uh, and so Americans might see it as a bigger problem. And we might, you know, in, into areas that we try to conserve. Um, but, yeah, it certainly it, it goes it, not just both ways, but in all directions among continents. And that, that brings up another kind of interesting thing. Usually the invasions that are, are intense and that seem to cause the most problems, it, it's a big jump. It's a large move. It's not like going from... You know you know maine to to Washington State, it's like Europe, North America, North America, China, you know South America to the Hawaiian Islands. so large this kind system. of thing yeah, where they've really been separate, and mm-hmm. usually it, this is debatable, but it usually the more unique the taxa is, like a genus that you do not find at all in North America, like there's almost no centaria that's that spot in napweed, there's almost no centaria in a species in North America, maybe one. Uh, in Europe, there are many, 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 many. And so it's, it's not just a new species in North America, it's a new genus. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that you know going to a place where there's nobody like you it, it could be important for invasive success. But it's not always like that, to, to, to be sure.
0: Now, you, were, you mentioned just a little while ago that um, when you have traveled, uh, in Europe, uh, to look for a spot that here and there you saw some, but it wasn't uh, as big yeah, of an issue as right. you would here. Um, where have you traveled internationally over the years, uh, aside from Europe, where um, you have uh, where you have found interesting uh, interesting situations or cases of species that? Um,
1: yeah. A lot of places. Um, well, one of the more interesting now, I think, and I, I, I haven't been to all of these places, but I, I'm involved now in uh, what I just think is a really fun project, and it involves a number of different uh, North American native uh, conifers, mostly pines, and it's one of the it, it, it's it's partially. Interesting, because it's related to one of the biggest biogeographical, millions of years ago kind of thing, split. So um, everything in the pine family, that's larches, that's pines, that's spruces and firs and so on. It's, they're all native to the northern hemisphere, mm-hmm. and that's where you find them, and they're super widespread. None of them, nothing in that family, the pine family, is native to the southern hemisphere mm-hmm. or Gondwana land. Um, so that in itself is kind of cool. Here's this 200-million-year split. That's when Laurasia in the north spit, split from Gondwana in the south, and then the conifers evolved after that, most of them, except for the really ancient ones. So that's kind of cool. But what adds to the kind of the coolness is that many of our, our native pine trees have been hauled off, hauled off to the southern hemisphere, where they ha- have produced incredibly productive pine plantations. And so – and then they escape Mm -hmm. uh, from there. And some of them have become quite invasive. And so I've been involved with uh, uh, folks in New Zealand and and, uh, uh, Chile and Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, uh, Australia Mm -hmm. uh, on, on measuring things like impact. Uh, and another uh, word, and we found it. So there's all these. Pine, you, you do the same pine canopy in the southern hemisphere wipes out a lot more species than that pine canopy in the northern hemisphere, or at least correlates with a wipeout. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of interesting. We don't know why. It may be chemical, you know, no, novel chemistry. Right. Um, but uh, we're also exploring things like. Down in the southern hemisphere, where they're not attacked by as many, they grow like five times faster down there. Um, are they? They also appear to be more resistant to drought uh, than they are here mm. in terms of their growth rings. We don't know that yet. That's um. That's uh, we're working on it right now. Um, I've been coring a lot of trees in the west and in the southeast, um, and it looks like here drought means a really small ring. They don't like it. Down in it seems like in Chile, they don't care you know they might be a little bit smaller but they're still growing like crazy huh. and we don't we don't really know why that might be but we have some ideas so
0: that is an interesting area to you is to look at the split between southern and northern hemisphere one
1: one, one interesting thing
0: is there another sort of interest area where you would say this is something that I have looked into, or I would like to look into more. That is an international or global situation.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so I mean, in terms of exotic invasives, mm-hmm. still. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I doubt you know I will I will it, you know find the time or you know whatever to engage, but I think island invasions are particularly interesting. Islands seem to be very susceptible to invasions, like Hawaii, mm-hmm. for example, that's sort of the epicenter, or the Galapagos. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I, I would love to, to, to explore that kind of global pattern, more of, of invasions on, on islands that have a relatively limited flora, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, especially when you start moving up to the family level and so on. They, you know, they've kind of, I mean, it, not so many species get distributed naturally out there right? Over, t- over millions of years. So they seem to be more susceptible to to invasion. So that certainly would be one. Um, I have worked in a, a, a little bit of a diversion, but um, one of my first international Uh, experience was working in the Caucasus of Georgia, Republic of Georgia. But I went there to do uh, alpine research, comparative alpine research Mm -hmm. with a a Georgian scientist. And while there, well I went back and forth maybe five times, Um, but while there I noticed uh, patterns of species that were native there and, and apparently quite well behaved, but exotic Non-native invasive here in Montana, and so that triggered quite a bit of that initiated a lot of of my biogeographical work. Um, but I didn't go initially to to, to explore invasions, but I, I was working in alpine systems. Okay. So yeah. But it
0: must be interesting to um, to look at one's research locally and then compare it to other places in the world and see what changes simply on as you described when you look at a tree uh, in the northern hemisphere and then one in the southern hemisphere and you're comparing tree rings yeah and just on that level and why that is and i'd like to think and 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 i I know a little bit um from our um pre-interview talk that there are indeed many things that are not clear. And that um, while while they are scientifically a certain way, um, researchers are still trying to figure out why exactly it is that way.
1: That, and that is a great question or subject because while we, in my opinion, we've learned a lot from sure. studying non-native invasive plants. Sure. It's shaken up the way that we view ecology and rapid evolution right but the kind of the flip side which is do we now understand why non-native invaders succeed Uh, the answer would be no or at least if you got 20 of us in the same room it would just turn into a mess Um, again the big dog hypothesis idea out there is escape from natural enemies. Mm -hmm. You take a species from its native range and haul it off in grain or whatever to its non-native range, and you don't bring all of the things that eat it Mm -hmm. along for the ride. And so now that it's free from all of that uh, consumerism, herbivory, and pathogens, now it can compete to its heart's content and all the natives, they're still being eaten by, you know, their, 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 the stuff they co-evolved with. Right. So that is the big dog hypothesis. But there are hundreds of studies and many, 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 many conflict. So it's not like, you know, that is just shown to be, oh, the perfect thing that describes it yeah. all. Uh, the, you find examples of – we've learned a ton about mutualisms. And a lot of it is counterintuitive, usually with the fungi, the mutualistic fungi that live in plant roots called, called mycorrhizae. Well, there's a lot of evidence that non-native invasive species interact with mycorrhizae in their non-native range, which is really weird, way differently, very, very differently. But does that consistently seem to explain exotic invasions? No. Uh, so novel chemistry. Okay, now there's some cool evidence that if you show up with some, you know, biochemistry that the locals haven't seen, you can gain an advantage. Is that consistent? No. And so, and, and there, for one mechanism or hypothesis after another, we end up learning really interesting things about ecology. But we have, we have a ferocious time trying to pin down why exotic, or non-native, invasive plants do their deed it's 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 a it's a very frustrating thing but it's true
0: but that also i mean means that there is lots of research that needs to be done and that um to discover these things and to actually find out why
1: yeah um, it is a certain way true uh, uh, true Uh, although my my hunch is it's it's like a lot of things when you start dealing with, like in a community, with Mm -hmm. many moving parts Mm -hmm. and types of interactions that we don't fully understand, that the success of something like spotted knapweed is due to a lot of things. Um, And it may depend on if it's in a wet place or a dry place. I mean, there's all of this conditionality that um, probably has to be embraced, um, uh, which is tough for scientists because we don't want, you know, conditionality. We want... A, a very clean suite of hypotheses and answers to them. Right. Um, but if it's a if it's a highly integrated process, um, if it is, then it was. It's not just more experiments because we've done a lot. <laughs> it, it it would be trying to interpret them in terms of some more integrated way. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't. Do I know that? No. Uh, is is that likely to be important? Yeah, I think so.
0: Is your research a catalyst to environmental policy development? Or have you um, seen any of that moving in that direction?
1: Um, well, I mean, I'm a very pointy-headed guy. I, I like basic science. I, I love it. Um, so I think if you were to be talking about my research, I don't think so. At least nobody's told me. Um, but if you want to talk about uh, it, it, research on exotic invasive plants yes for sure i mean a, a, a lot of policy has developed and and probably hopefully more would but there's conflicting political things so for example let's just say that the horticultural business uh, is a source of uh, of introductions of you know every once in a while you get a new invasive plant well that that industry doesn't want to see restrictions on uh, totally understandably on, on species that they bring in to sell and for economic gain. And you can multiply that out in, in many ways. So probably some kind of reasonable kinds of compromises uh, are, would be important um, in terms of policy. Um, yeah. So and 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 certainly the 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 criteria for moving stuff around, whether it's soil or plants or seed, from continent to continent, that's tightened. You okay. know, it's very hard for me to get a soil permit now to work with um, soil from Europe. Let's say. Sure. I can do it, but right. Yeah, I have to, you know, sell my firstborn, but I can I can do it. <laughs>
0: Now, has your lab developed ideas that have been a game changer in the field?
1: I think my lab has developed ideas that have been new and that have had impact on um, on the way we think about uh, non-native exotics. Um, whether you would call it a, a game changer or not, I, I'm not sure, but for example, the um, what I mentioned earlier about novel chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, that came from my lab. That came uh, through a, a talk about serendipity in science. It was part of the being in the, in the, in the Caucasus. I was there with an, undergrad, an undergraduate student who eventually got his Ph.D. with me. His name is Eric Aschehaug. He's a professor in Norway now. Um, we were, made this observation. Like, look at all these – the same genera of grasses – that we have in Montana. It looks just looks I have a picture. You could you could be out on the East Front. And we thought, well, why doesn't it why does why does napweed it was a different napweed, this was a uh, diffuse napweed, coexisting. And so we did an experiment in which we uh, played around with activated carbon to try to diminish any kind of a biochemical, what we call allelopathic effect, chemicals from the roots, and we found that uh the diffuse weed had virtually no biochemical effect on natives it coexisted with, but really strong uh, biochemical effects on species in the same genus mm-hmm. here in Montana. And we call that the novel weapons hypothesis. In other words, again, like I said before, you show up with some biochemistry against whatever, microbes, other plants, right. uh, herbivores that nobody's ever seen before. Maybe you have a big advantage, so that's been a, a contribution. But like all the other hypotheses, some evidence looks good, some doesn't. So I mean, that would be that would probably be the the most important and most important sort of larger contribution. The um, other aspects would be, uh, you know, done some of the initial work in doing biogeographical what we call plant soil feedback experiments so basically soil from europe soil from um north america and what we find and now this is commonly found is that soil from europe the native range of napweed let's just Mm -hmm. say this many species we've done this with is highly suppressive of napweed soil from north america does nothing in Mm -hmm. fact there's a slight positive effect depending on the place and where you collect the soil. So this difference in plant-soil feedbacks is something I made an early contribution to, or my lab did. There's a bunch of us involved. And then in other aspects would be working with mutualisms, mutualistic fungi, um, uh, although those patterns are not as consistent as the feedbacks. These, these negative feedbacks from soil bio at home, and you escape them. Uh, so it's a form of enemy release, Sure, escape them in the, in the, in the non-native
0: range. How interesting, though, that soil itself uh, can foster the growth of something or inhibit it.
1: Well, it's the biota in the soil. The
0: biota in the soil. Yeah.
1: So and so, the only way you would get this is that, and, and what is kind of interesting, because you know, soil pathogens tend not to be super host specific. Maybe sorta, um, but you'd probably you'd want to ask a microbiologist to confirm that <laughs> but but uh you'd have to have you have to have something that in the native range sure is 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 really slowing the growth of the, the, the species right and that is left behind when you when you haul the plant off to to the non-native range but that is one of that is a very common pattern that plant soil feedback change very common Okay, that was something very
0: specific. Is there anything more broadly conceptual?
1: Yeah, but I, I think I'd have to say it's been something—a a shift in the in kind of the ecological world that I've been involved in, but not something that's been just like derived or emerged from my lab. Sure. And I, I think I would argue that uh, for a lot of us, invasive uh, plants have, have, have led us to read kind of evaluate sort of fundamental principles about how communities are nature is organized. So when I was a PhD student, I was pretty much told, don't call yourself a community ecologist because they don't exist. And, you know, every the, and, and the, the basically the dominant way of looking at things was, you know, plants, especially plants, were individualistic things. Now, I'm an individualistic human, that's for sure. Uh, but plant communities are not very individualistic if indeed you can take some with an evolutionary history, mix them up, and then they behave differently. What that means is their interactions over time change their community interactions with each other. That establishes some level of a network of codependence or co-aggression or co-something, but they're not acting in individualistically. So I would say that exotic invasives challenge the notion that you can just mix up any old group of plant species based upon some suite of traits and predict what they're going to do. Because no, evolutionary history matters. And if that's true, that's a very, that really upends the 1980s, 1990s kind of version of how nature is organized. It's more codependent has more historical meaning and and so on and and that indeed is is important. If evolutionary history matters to a plant community, um, that's a profound change in the way ecologists have been thinking for the last twenty to thirty to forty years. Now,
0: listening to you, this is of interest to scientists, researchers, but I also think that there is value to the local community that people live in. Um, why is it important for a community to have an ecological
1: knowledge base? Well, when it when it comes to this particular subject, it's a pretty big deal in in Western Montana. Uh, I mean, if you've had your property, you know, kind of engulfed and leafy spurge, cheatgrass, spotted knapweed, sulfur sinking foil, you know, Dalmatian toad flax, that, you know, that's probably not something you're very positive about. Um, And so, and if you use that land, you know, for agricultural purposes, you're highly likely not to be positive about that. (laughs) Um, And so, knowledge about that, how to keep, I mean... That is one of the main jobs, especially as you move – the more you move to the west of Montana ranchers to control uh, the quality of their, of their, of their range for right. their animals. And so th- that's, that's a big one. I haven't even touched – we haven't talked about like aquatic invaders, you know, that can do serious damage to to you know our streams and rivers and probably our streams and rivers have been more altered by exotic invasions than our terrestrial systems. I always I, see that. Probably Go, needs to be taken out of that sentence. You know, they have.
0: Right. I always see that going up to Flathead Lake. Um, the signs that say yeah. uh do not um bring in boats from other yeah. areas without checking yeah. and so they need to be checked for certain kind of muscles, muscles or things that might be growing on the bottom of the boat yeah. that could then be released yeah. into the local yeah. waters.
1: usually it's transport of the larvae but yeah so you know our our university of montana's flathead lake biology station biological station uh, is very involved in that, you know. G- Jim Elser, the director up there, is, you know, quite aggressive about keeping tabs on, on how how things are going. But that's just one. I mean, Flathead Lake has a lot of exotic species in it. Right, yeah. but the, we so, like some of them. We like to right. fish for them. So
0: the aquatic side is another important one. Um, Huge. That's what you were saying. Yeah. that is also important for people, for the average person. To know about,
1: yeah, and 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 this goes gets back to your positive question. So, for example, the, I mean, brown trout and the and the Clark, Clark Fork, that's not native, yeah. but it is the it is the now it's become yeah. the center of of our sports uh, angling uh, activities
0: activity, yep.
1: yeah. and, and so uh, it is an obvious conflict there that needs to be approached with with wisdom and 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 sort of making priorities you know most of us like to fish right and so that, and there's there's no clean answer right uh, but that, that there's there's certainly a positive effect of on, on a lot of us you know of brown trout and it
0: seems as though just listening uh, to you speak there the importance is that these these efforts are strategic they're not They're not sort of coming out of the blue and doing something for a while in a certain area without any sort of larger plan. It needs to be a strategic approach to control these things. May they be on land or in the
1: water or wherever else. Sure, and a strategic often involves, you know, Multiple landowners, because you know, if you if you spray the dandelions in your lawn and your neighbor doesn't, they'll come mm. back. Right, um, faster. They'll come back anyway, I'm sure. But um, yeah, for 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 sure, it has to be something that that is planned out. And and it's also important in that strategy to realize virtually all of the kind of control or what we want to do or how we even perceive exotic invasives is us. Yeah. it's humans right and so um, maybe if we all thought a monoculture of spotted napweed didn't flower in August was the most beautiful thing we could ever imagine we probably would be like hey we want more of this um, but most of us sort of see value uh, human value right. in in the systems that have been here for a very long time um, but it still is it all boils down to what you know, a kind of a human value system. At least that's my opinion. Others might argue, no, there's something inherent about Gaia or something. But that's not my perspective. My perspective is that, you know, and I would then argue for the value of of natural or semi-natural systems.
0: Now, do scientists in your area, um, is there like an international... um, Association or an international group that looks at these things on a global scale.
1: Uh, yeah, there there would be multiple. They tend to be, to my knowledge, pretty organic. Uh, in other words, groups of scientists that actually like to work together uh, and and that sort of thing. But there are some that are that have grown substantially larger than others. Um, and, and expanded like this one, I, I, let's call, it's NutNet or Nutrient Network. And this is global and it has evolved to ask uh, interesting questions about uh, non-native exotic species. So yeah, um, and then there are, there are more official types of organizations uh, that would be like you know groups of countries and and this sort of thing, right. but ten, they don't tend to be involved in the, same, in the kind of research that, that I do. Okay. you know mechanistic you know okay. kinds of things. There's uh, the the CABI program, uh, CABI international, and they they're they're, they're global. Uh, they maintain a lot of really cool databases. They evaluate biocontrols. They evaluate um, the impact of different plant species and so on. So yeah, and I'm probably scratching the surface in terms of other other more formal organizations. Right.
0: But it seems like with a topic like this one that there is, um, A, an international awareness, but also the desire to um, streamline approaches, perhaps, or learn from each other to to solve something, Um, much more so than it is an individual's effort. Oh, um, for sure. I mean, you, if
1: it's if you if you want it, it, solutions are are political decisions. It, 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 there, there's no way to stop it at the border, right? It's, right. it's something that has to be right. negotiated and talked about by uh, both source and sink, right? For for these things.
0: Now, after all these years of research and many discoveries, what are some mysteries that remain in your field? <laughs> coming to the end of our podcast time uh, I thought I saved that one for last
1: yeah that, that, that's hard to separate out what's not a mystery <laughs> um, one of the one of the crazy things about ecology is is uh is that the questions are the, the hard part uh, uh, really and answers can be hard too but we don't Always know what questions to ask, so so an engineer, you know, or most physicists and a lot of, uh, you know, chemists, they know what they want to know, they just can't have a hard time figuring out the answer. You know, in other words, so they tackle it in ways that are pretty, you know, pretty prescripted. Right. Whereas ecologists, you know, the, the the the. the aspect of create creative question answering, asking sorry, is crucial uh, because and so the this mystery component. I mean, certainly I've been very clear about the mystery of what makes a non-native invasive so good at what it does. Like I said, we we, we don't know. And the same, I would say, there are also really interesting mysteries in terms of uh, uh, the rapid evolution of non-native species in their non-native range. Mm -hmm. Um, They do some really remarkable things. They almost overwhelmingly grow larger. Uh, They tend, they they very often tend to be much more competitive. We've already talked about that. They tend to uh, accelerate very exotic kind of chemical defenses Mm -hmm. in their leaves, actually accelerate them, Mm -hmm. but decelerate the, the toughness and 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 structural defenses in their leaves, so they become softer and more tender, mm-hmm. um, while becoming you know more biochemical you know ridden. So these kinds of evolutionary changes are mysteries, and 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 and, and incredibly interesting. But it, I mean that's just scratching the surface of mysteries sure. when it comes to, to you know ecology in general.
0: So there are definitely lots of things that um,
1: that aren't known. And that need to oh, be yeah.
0: that need to be yeah. still tackled.
1: Oh yeah, there are thousands of ecologists working on roughly. I mean these problems. I mean there's probably at every university in the world has somebody right. that's interested in some aspect, as long as they have a biology department. Right. Some aspect of this global issue of biota, you know, being being spread around the world by, by people. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much oh, for thank you. your time and for sharing your knowledge with us and for bringing this entire subject a little closer to us and making it relevant. As in you said, um, any rancher, anybody that uh, is growing something, and especially yeah. in a state like Montana, yeah. um, should know and probably does know to some degree uh, some of these things because they are impacting their life directly and true. the way they um, can be productive and, uh, and be in business. Yeah,
1: no, it's, uh, that is true.
0: So thank you very no. much. Um, I've pleasure. been talking to Ray Calloway, Regents Professor at the University of Montana on the topic of global ecology, interactions between exotic invaders and native ecosystems. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the International Voices podcast series. The monthly episodes in 2023 are exclusively sponsored by Orr McDonnell Law, advocates for all personal injury, family law and landlord-tenant matters. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know, being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Arts Missoula Global and The Trail 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and the trail 1033.com. If your interests are in global and intercultural education, programming, cultural and global competence and international affairs, we hope you join us again next month for another episode of International Voices.